With a government shutdown on the horizon, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is preparing to furlough the vast majority of its staff. That could leave CISA with just a skeleton crew to respond to cyber attacks on federal agencies and critical infrastructure. For more, I'm joined by Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Justin, welcome back. Hey, Eric, how are you doing? Very well. So what is CISA's plan in the event of a shutdown? So only about 571 out of CISA's 3,117 employees would be retained in the event of a shutdown. That's according to DHS's latest uh, plan for a lapse in appropriations just updated earlier this week. So that means CISA would be sending home uh, either you know, in real life or proverbially about uh, eight, more than 80 percent of its staff, which is a pretty, pretty high number. And, you know, unless Congress acts in the coming days, funding for CISA and most other agencies will expire on Sunday. Uh, CISA does not have any of those those funds, you know, that kind of carry over beyond annual appropriations. So those folks who will be working that that 20 percent or so will be working without pay while the rest will be furloughed without pay. How do CISA's furloughing plans stack up against other DHS agencies? Because it's a large agency that is made up of a lot of components. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, most other DHS components are going to keep the majority of their employees working through a pandemic. They're either accepted, meaning they'll work without pay, or they're exempted, meaning they have some other funding source and can continue to be paid. So, for instance, the Transportation Security Agency will continue bringing in, you know, all the airport screeners who work at airports. The Federal Emergency Management Agency will continue bringing in the majority of its staff, over 90%. Same with Customs and Border Patrol and, and right on down the line at DHS. So CISA is really an outlier here when it comes to DHS components. I spoke with Chris Kamiski, a former senior DHS official, just about how, you know, CISA being one of the newest agencies with a relatively new mission in cybersecurity and how that kind of stacks up in a shutdown. I don't think we've really thought through as a country what it means to have your cyber agency you know, at such a low level of activity when the cyber incident and attack vectors are you know, just increasing. So it just seems like the adversary would be like, oh, okay, this is a great time, you know, when we know that agencies are at, at low capacity to go in and try attacks. And again, that's Chris Kamiski, former senior DHS official, talking about how CISA is uh, reacting to a shutdown here. All right. So are the critical activities that the nation's infrastructure depend on CISA 4 going to take a backseat? I mean, what is going to continue with so much of the staff being furloughed? Yeah, we really can only uh, speculate based on data here because DHS's shutdown plan does not really detail exactly who at CISA will be required to continue to work. I mean, I'm sure that's a security issue there. So, so, but you, you know, you can expect the leadership will continue to come in. So, CISA Director Jenny is truly, of course, that's pretty standard for any agency. And, and then, you know, probably the folks who work on some of the more critical, you know, either critical infrastructure programs or the federal cyber security programs. CISA has about 1,100 full-time employees working on cybersecurity programs. That's operations to help secure federal networks, major cybersecurity services. So obviously not all of those folks will continue to come in, but some of them will. I spoke to Matt Hayden, a former senior DHS and CISA official. He spoke a little bit about how things work at CISA during a shutdown. 
The good news is, is the operational footprint of CISA, the operational scanning and, and the, the true cyber warriors on keyboard isn't going to miss a beat. So that's the good news. The bad news is there's a lot of engagement with industry, exercises that are done with sector leadership. There are there are efforts that, you know, just due to the nature of a shutdown, don't get flagged as critical that they get paused for however long the shutdown takes. It's former DHS official Matt Hayden, and we're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. So speaking from experience there, obviously CISA has been through a shutdown before. What did it look like in the past? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Uh, the 2018-2019 shutdown, the longest federal government shutdown in history, actually uh, began a little more than one month after CISA was established as a standalone agency at DHS. So, you know, it, it was really just getting established as a kind of a startup agency growing out of DHS's former National Programs and Protection Directorate. And it was still a very small agency at the time. It, it's grown a lot in the last couple of years. It's also grown a lot in terms of the responsibilities that it has for both federal government cybersecurity, as well as working with critical infrastructure and kind of the broader technology ecosystem on cybersecurity. They've hired, you know, more than 1400 people over the last 2 years. So it's a, it's it's an entirely new agency this time around if a shutdown were to happen compared to the last time uh, about 4 years ago. Yeah, and with everybody including the private sector competing for talent in the cybersecurity industry, uh, I can imagine that this will only have a damaging effect on morale with so many employees getting furloughed. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a lot of folks are getting furloughed, you know, you you can safely assume uh two things about CISA, uh, you know, cyber employees at CISA. One um is that they probably took a pay cut to work for the government instead of for the private sector. And two, it's it's probably based on the fact that they wanted to be a part of a mission like at CISA, as opposed to working for, you know, a technology company or something like that. And now both 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 their pay is being taken away until the shutdown ends. And and for a lot of folks, that mission is being taken away for for however long the, the furlough lasts. So you can I spoke to several efforts who kind of talked about how this will probably have will definitely have a morale impact. And it could have an attrition impact at a time when CISA is still, you know, looking to grow and it's looking to get all those new employees kind of, you know, continue to be engaged in what the agency does for the long term. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thank you for the update. All right. Thank you, Eric. And you can find more of Justin's reporting and our continued shutdown coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Just search government shutdown for our shutdown resource page. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. 
Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week 
and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply. That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that 
you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.